the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Space Shuttle Challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. Welcome back Thank to you. the Seth Liebson Show. Believe it or not, that was 35 years ago today. I remember it like yesterday. I suspect anyone alive does. It had that kind of impact, the Challenger explosion. And Ronald Reagan's response to it, our good friend, dear friend Tevi Troy, presidential historian, his most recent book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump, getting a lot of attention. Tevi Troy had a piece in National Review today on this disaster and speech. And uh, we love we love remembering these kinds of things. Tevi, thanks for coming back on. Seth, thanks for having me. And just thank you for playing the words at the beginning of this segment, because the words from Ronald Reagan 35 years later still give me chills. Yeah, they still give us chills. And I want to do the story of it. First, a little house cleaning or keeping housekeeping. You and I talk often, and Frequently. sometimes my producer is uh, privy to these conversations. And, and sometimes our conversations aren't even on the air. Right, exactly. <laughs> and he uh, was part of a conversation you and I were having yesterday, and when you hung up, do you know what he said to me? Does every time He time. said, does every time Tevi call you, you just put him on speakerphone and scream at him? <laughs> do you want to let the audience know? No. Every time you call me, I do not scream at you. <laughs> we always have a good time. On air and off. All right. So I think it was the last time you might have been with us, Tevi, that you were talking about or we were talking about how infrequently we remember actual speeches or lines from speeches from presidents. It's It's actually a pretty rare thing. We can remember such and such was supposed to be a great speech. Donald Trump's speech in Prague was supposed to be a great speech. It was. I just don't remember a particular line from it. I remember no lines from the great orator Barack Obama uh, other than sentences that weren't parts of great speeches, like if you like your health care, you can keep it, or if you like your doctor, you can keep it. Um, I don't remember great lines uh, from Bill Clinton from great speeches, to be honest with you. Uh, perhaps one of his State of the Unions where he said the era of big government is over, but although I don't think he would have been wanting to remember, be remembered for that. But we remember a good five or six or seven or eight lines from Ronald Reagan, don't we? And this Challenger speech gives us at least one or two of them, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Look, Reagan had probably four or five speeches as president that are memorable. The yep. Boys of Ponto Hulk, the Statue of Liberty speech, yep. the um, Tear Down This Wall yep. speech. Yep. So, 
and obviously this challenger speech. So, so Reagan had this ability to do oratory and have memorable concepts that people could absorb. It's kind of like you go to the opera and you leave and you can't really leave singing any of the words. Right. But if you go to a popular musical, you can you get the message and you can sing it on the way out. Right. So I think Reagan had that ability. And the other point, Seth, is that what we were talking about last time is something I was thinking about for this particular article. Oh, good. That Ronald Reagan was an oasis of great and memorable presidential rhetoric in a desert of terrible rhetoric and unmemorable rhetoric both before and after. And you yeah. mentioned a couple of them. Right. Bill Clinton's known for saying, I didn't have sex with that woman. Yeah. Barack Obama saying it's known for, if you like your doctor, you can keep it. Yeah. Jerry Ford's known for saying, our long national nightmare is over. Right. Richard Nixon says, I'm not a crook. None of these were great lines about great things that were written as part of the script. Or emotionally, yeah, or emotionally fraught. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, so, Long National Nightmare was written as part of the script, but it's not necessarily a, an uplifting moment. No, <laughs> right. talking about a, a horrible episode in American history. Right. And, and so, again, you go before Reagan and you go after Reagan, and there's nary a great presidential line. A little down. John Kennedy from his inaugural, maybe, and a little FDR, and other than that, I couldn't tell you a single thing Truman or Eisenhower said. Yeah, and, and look, uh, Kennedy's 20 years before Reagan. Right. Roosevelt's 40 years before right. Reagan, 40 right. 50 years before Right. So, again, I think, I, I think I stand by my assessment that Reagan is an oasis in the desert of presidential rhetoric, both before his presidency and after. And we see in this Challenger speech, and in my article about it, that talks about the development of those Four minutes, right? Four four minutes, 680-something words, and he really said something memorable and beautiful, and uh, he should be be lauded for it. Yeah, I want to talk about the Challenger disaster. I want to do a lot about this. Now, Reagan was also known to have some very gifted speechwriters, maybe one of the greatest speechwriters. You and I have isolated three or four great speechwriting staffs in, in history. This would have been Reagan's would have been one of them. Right? You agree with me on oh, yeah. that? Yeah, Peggy Noonan Pe- and uh, Ben Elliott was a great speechwriter, and Peter Robinson. Tony uh, Dolan. Tony, uh, wait, uh, yeah. I can't his name, but... Uh, Tony Dolan, uh, of course. Yeah, was, Tony Dolan. Yeah. So, yeah, some Ke- really, wasn't really... Ke- wasn't there... What, who was the guy from California? Was there Kachigian, I think? Oh, yeah, Ken Kachigian. Yeah. Right? I mean, it was Mona a great... Mona Charon t- was actually there working on uh, the First Lady staff. Who was? Mona Charon was oh, a yeah. Nancy okay. Reagan yeah. All right, she's on my list for something else right now. We won't get into that. But Regardless. Okay. But I'm just saying, there are, there are people who made their yeah. living as a writer yeah. okay. in that administration. Regardless. To do so. All right, this will be one of those calls where I scream at you. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, 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 um. So Peggy Noonan gets this speech. She's relatively unknown as one of Reagan's speechwriters. Tell the story of how she got this speech. I think it's a pretty good one. Yeah, interesting how you say she gets the speech. I mean, she is given the speech. Right, right. It is handed to her by Don Regan, right. who said, let's give it to that girl. Right. Don't call me sexist. I'm right. just quoting the historical right. record. Right. He says, that girl, because she was known as the one who was good at doing the emotional speeches and bringing out emotion and bringing a little bit of, of poetry. Right. So she gets the speech. The, the challenger blows up at 11.38 in the morning. Reagan's right. supposed to give the State of the Union that afternoon. They cancel it, but he's still going to speak to the nation from the Oval Office that evening. You've got six hours. His call, by the way, it. this was all his decision. He says, no State of the Union. i got to address the country on the challenger, right? Right, which is right. a big, big deal. Right. You don't right. lightly cancel the right. State of the Union. Right, right. And so you have, he, she's got to be assigned the speech. She's got to write the speech. 
She's got to get it through the staffing process, which isn't easy. It's something I talk about in the piece. And my understanding, I just talked to uh, someone who was in the Reagan White House at the time, who said that Reagan actually made extensive handwritten revisions on the speech even after he got Peggy's approved draft, which I think is interesting as well. Now, I don't remember if it was something I read of hers or if it was in your piece. Forgive me. It doesn't matter too terribly much. <coughs> Excuse me. But she puts that line, slipped the surly bonds of earth, the line we remember. That comes from an old poem from John Gillespie McGee. And she said, or you said she said, again, I don't remember. She said she knew Reagan would use it only if he knew it. That is to say... She threw it in there thinking he might know that poem. That's an old poem that she knew as a kid from like seventh or eighth grade. And she thought he would use it and it would work, but he would keep it only if he knew it. Was that in your yeah, piece or that, something she wrote? I don't that, remember. That was not me, but yeah. it is true. Uh, and she was right yep. to recognize that if Reagan recognized it, yep. he would go ahead and use it. And look, this really speaks to something about our education system. Right. I don't think our kids are learning poetry in no. school no. the way they do today. They would they, the way they did back then. And there was a common language of poetry. There were certain poets that you would be taught in school, whether you were going in 1900, 1910, like Reagan, or if you were going in you know 1970, like Peggy Newman. Right. And there was a common culture. And now, you know, memorization to of poems. our common culture. Right. I mean, you look at what's going on in San Francisco when they're trying to take even sure. Abraham Lincoln's name sure. off a school building. Uh, what Ronald Reagan stood for was the celebration of American culture and mm-hmm. the recognition that America was something different and great. And memorization was, is such a huge, important thing. It was part of Reagan's education. You remember, I think I shared with you that video of when he and Bill Bennett were trading um, poetry from the cremation of Sam McGee, an old Robert Service poem that Bennett just kind of guessed Reagan would know on the fly on at a press conference. I've sent you that, haven't I? Yes, with, you did. It's great. There are great. strange things right. done in the midnight yes, sun right. by the men who moil for gold, and they just went. And Bill just knew Reagan could do that. The way Peggy basically had to know Reagan would know that line from the Robert Service poem. They they knew. That's kind of an interesting book that's probably never going to be written, The Education of Ronald Reagan. Tammy, I'm going to keep you a while. Are you good for a bit? Please. All right. We're heading Definitely. into the break. We're talking to presidential historian Tevi Troy. Most recently, his uh, book is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. We'll be right back. Do you recall something that starts, there are strange things done in the midnight sun? By the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales. It would make your blood run cold. <laughs> I give up. There it is. That's what we were talking about. We're, we're delighted to have Tevi Troy with us, presidential historian. He has a great piece in National Review today, remembering 35 years ago today, the Challenger speech. But we were talking about Ronald Reagan's understanding of poetry and the way he learned it. And Peggy Noonan putting that line in. Uh, of slipping the surly bonds of earth from the John McGee poem. I think the Bennett Reagan poem was Robert Service. But these were great poets that kids learned their poetry as kids, as Tevi was saying. And Tevi, you were making a point or wanted to make a point. It wasn't so – the important thing as speechwriters, which we are or have been, I should say, we're, we're kind of fascinated by the inside story of how a speechwriter <clears throat> does his or her <coughs> craft. Excuse me. So it was interesting to me that Peggy knew – that Reagan would only use that line if he knew it, which meant that 
she must have known he he would have known that line. But you had another point about why Reagan kept it that I think is more important. It's not just that Reagan recognized it himself, right. but that he recognized that the American people would recognize yeah. it. It's kind of like in, in Lincoln's Gettysburg Address when he says four score and seven years ago. Yeah. It's not that he didn't want to say 87 years. Yeah. He knew that the audience would recognize that that's an allusion to the King James Bible uh, version of Psalms, when they talk about the, the span of a life, man's life is three score and ten years. Yeah, exactly. He was intentionally speaking in biblical language, and he knew that the audience would recognize it. And that is not necessarily something that a president could do today in terms of uh, quoting poetry, because American people aren't learning. Or almost anything else. That's a great point, because... You think about what unites a people. Unity is a big word where you live, I suppose, these days. You, th- you think about what makes a people, and part of it is a common set of references, a, if you will, cultural literacy. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, Ben Shapiro has this, uh, this really good book out recently called uh, How to Destroy America in Three Steps, and he talks about uh, the, the things that unite us. And he talks about American history. American culture and the American idea. And those three things are the kind of the pillars of the American school. And if you have schools teaching people to reject those things, American history is the history of bad people, and American culture is a bad culture, and, and the American idea is no, no more special than you know, the, the Greek or the, or the French or any other idea, then you are losing what is making America special. And I think Reagan went to school at a time, and Peggy Newton still went at a time, when they were teaching things that united us about America. And that's why Reagan was able to give that great speech, and that's why we are still talking about it 35 years from now, when there is zero chance, I'm making this prediction early in the Biden administration, there is zero chance that 35 years from now people will get together and talk about a Biden speech. I think that's right. I think that's right. There was a story the other day that um, that uh, about about how Joe Biden's inaugural speech is, was written and about how his speechwriter, forgetting the gentleman's name, it's not an easy name, his chief speechwriter, does speeches. Did you see this and how Biden saw a line? It's not easy writing for him, evidently. He saw a line someone put in. And he said, I would never say anything like that. And the speechwriter had to point out, you just said it three weeks ago. Did you catch that? <laughs> yeah. Well, look, the Biden speech was fine. It was normal. It was a little cliche written. Uh, but it was it was not memorable. There's nobody can be quoting that speech decades from now. We're talking right. about great presidential right. inaugural. They include that one. Yeah. It's just, uh, it, I mean, and it's just his way, right? I mean, he sold himself as return to normalcy. By the way, the famous, the the famous speech that we know uh, Reagan um, and the speechwriter had such trouble with internally was the um, tear down this wall, Peter Robinson line, which State Department folks kept trying to take out, and Reagan and Peter kept putting back in. Uh, Peggy said they were they were kind of screwing around with this John McGee line, too. Yeah, so let, let me address both points. So it is true that the tear down this wall was something that was uh, constantly being taken out. By, by the way, do you know who I think the council. worst person was on that? By the way, do you know who? who, who, who? Well, I know that Colin Powell yeah, was. Yeah, that's a, yeah, it was Colin Powell was the name I had. Right. Go However, ahead. I just read this book called The Great Rift about the kind of friendship and then the collapse of the friendship between Cheney and Powell. Yeah. And it says that at some point, Powell recognized that the game was up. 
Yeah. And when State Department asked for that speech to be completely rewritten from scratch, he said, I'm sorry, we're going to go have, have to go at this point from the existing draft. <laughs> so Powell was always a very savvy bureaucratic yep, operator, even bet. though he was against the line. At some point, he recognized that the, the game was up. Uh, he was one of the most savvy people in Washington, always knew exactly how to position and play himself for the maximum effect of himself, I think. Right. I think. So absolutely that. But then on the second point that yeah. you made, which is also a, a good point about uh, Peggy coming across um, some challenges, uh, there was an NSC staffer, so once again, National Security Council getting in the way, who did not like the line about reach and touch the, the hand of God. And Face they, of God, right. To reach right. out and touch someone, right. which is from the, the AT&T commercial, yeah. which is just a banal cliche, and would have destroyed the speech. We would not be standing here today talking about the speech if it had had the line reach out and touch someone right right no we wouldn't uh and, and, and it's, to peggy's it, credit just last point on the peggy's credit it, she fought back yeah. she said well i'm not just gonna bow and scrape to the national security council right. i'm gonna push back on this and yeah. i'm gonna get my line and she did she well that's up. what makes a good speechwriter a good speechwriter but your larger point um if you want to expound on it a little more about reagan so well understanding what the american people needed and wanted so the challenger disaster, I guess that's the word we all use for it, was a signal event. Uh, you know, the, uh, 9-11, we all have those images. But until that, perhaps parts of the maybe, maybe the Kennedy assassination, maybe, but it was different for a lot of reasons. I, the American people never saw something like the Challenger on TV before. And he knew, he knew this was a signal event. And he knew oh. what the American people needed. As right. he and, and knew, you that, once told me this, as he knew when he was shot that he had to walk into the hospital. And then absolutely. the story is that he did and then collapsed once the doors shut because he knew what the American people needed. Am I, I onto mean, something? Was, uh, right. So uh, on both of those points, so uh, first of all, he was in worse shape than the American people knew at the time right. of him being shot. Right. And in fact, an inch from death, pallor, really, less than an inch, I think. Yeah, his pallor was so gray yeah. that one of the nurses saw this patient come into the into the uh, into the operating area. She didn't know who it was. Right. She just saw this gray patient, and she said, "This guy is Code City, yeah, which is hospital parlance for this guy's dead." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, obviously, he got out of Code City. Thank God. Yeah. Uh, but but the, the the second point about Reagan knew what the American people needed. Is he sat there in his anteroom and watched the Challenger right. explosion m multiple times on TV. Right, right. And so he had that same shared experience as the American people. He learned about it like almost everybody else because somebody interrupted and said, hey, the Challenger exploded. And he watched the footage on TV like everyone else. And he even referred to that shared experience of a nation in the speech. Yep. And so I think he knew what the American people needed because he experienced it himself. Tevi uh, Troy is our guest. Feel free to uh, give us any calls if you have uh, questions or contributions on any of this we're talking about. Um, but I have a lot more for you. I want to go back to education with you a bit, Tevi, if I can, uh, when we come back. Tevi is, among other things, the author of Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Are we going to see rivalries in this White House? That might be interesting to speculate on. Absolutely. Too. Yeah, that, let's talk about that, too. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Tevi Troy, presidential historian and author of several books, including most recently <clears throat> Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Tevi, uh, I do want to do something about schools and education and what's going on today, circling back to some things I've been thinking about and spoke about in my monologue. But before we do that, on your most recent book, you don't have the benefit of history just yet, but you expect to see some serious rivalries in the Biden White House? Oh, look, I think the lesson of White House, which I appreciate you giving me the first interview on and met many subsequent interviews, uh, but the lesson of White House is there's always fighting in the White House. I know there was fighting in the Trump White House and lots of media attention on it, but every single White, every single White House has fighting. And the real question is how does a president manage it? And some are better in managing it than others, but there's always going to be fighting. One wonders about that management style this time uh, with with the president, who seems to be, to put it charitably, fairly disengaged. Uh, I don't know if if he's disengaged on particulars. You know, I'll be maybe criticized for this. I don't mean it too terribly critically, but they each have different management styles. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, in my reading of the Reagan presidency, some of the history around Iran-Contra was blamed on Ronald Reagan's management style, which was not to get too caught up in too many of the details of of, uh, of what was going on beneath him. I think he may have even admitted as much or written as much. I, I expect, of course, that was later in his second term, but I expect that's going to be an issue here from the get-go. Yeah, I, I think so. Um Reagan was obviously a little uh, old, uh, on in years uh, by the end of the second term, and Biden is starting at an older age. Yeah, Biden's older now yeah. than Reagan was when he left office. Yeah, think about that for a second. Yeah. And look, you know, the uh, the whole campaign idea was you know, not to have Biden in your face, not to try and sell him as some big manager, but just, you know, Biden's in his basement and he's being quiet while Trump is making noise. And that, that was the contrast in the campaign. And I, I read in the New York Times, one of the reporters said to uh, one of the Biden campaign aides, who thought this whole idea of just hiding in your basement would, would be a successful campaign strategy? And the Biden aide said, we did. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they have a plan. Uh, but he's I also think- a gaffe machine, though. I mean, he's also it's it's also, you, you, you know, if you work for Joe Biden, you're always worried about the getting to the end of the sentence without a huge mistake. Right, but that, that's why you want to keep him in the basement right, on the right, campaign trail. Right, right. That's why when Donald Trump is talking in the debate, uh, you want to let him keep talking because yeah. you know, the biggest mistake Trump made in that first debate was not letting Biden talk. Right. And in fact, right. his debate advisor said, let Biden talk. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, Give him enough rope and he'll hang himself. No he, kidding. He says problematic things. But Trump didn't want to do that. He wanted to kind of he, he thought that he could kind of out alpha Biden, flood and, the zone, uh, pressure him <laughs> yeah. into, into melting, and, and Biden didn't. He stayed cool under pressure, but he also didn't have the opportunity to make the gap that he totally could have made. I wonder if Biden knows that he's a gaff machine. That's an interesting question. There's no way to answer that, but that would be interesting to know. I mean, there are people you know, who look, know they make mistakes. Rational. George H. W. Bush knew he made mistakes when he spoke. Right. I don't know if Biden knows that. People rationalize what they do. They say, oh, well, this was taken out of context, or this was a long time ago, or I, you know, I don't do that now. So, you know, people could be self-critical, but they also rationalize it. And they, they don't necessarily see themselves as the outside world sees them. So I don't think he walks up, wakes up in the morning and says, oh, 
gas machine. What am I going to do about it? Yeah, right, 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 right. Um, all right, I want to get to education and what we're doing to education uh, now. Uh, but uh, as a transition there, a listener wrote a pretty good email to me. I, I don't have an answer off the top of my head. Maybe we can think on one over the break. Is there a book with the poems that Americans used to know? On Amazon, there are a variety of anthologies. Frederick Douglass used a reader that he loved that I bought, which was fantastic. But that, of course, will take you to the 19th century. And I wonder if there's one more more common people would think of the Norton anthologies, of course. Right? Yeah, I was, I was thinking the Norton anthology of literature had poetry in it. There may be a Norton anthology that includes poetry. Whether there, whether that's the right one or not, we're not teaching it in schools. I know when my kids were younger, I would come up with a, a list of things that they had to memorize yeah. in the summer. And if they did, they would... They would no, I think that's right. Bill Bennett gave a speech on what kids should know. Edie Hirsch's book, Cultural Literacy, I think, has an anthology in the back. I'm yeah, that's true. But it's more a list. It doesn't have. Yeah, it's a list. It's not the poems itself, right? Right. right. But, you know, my kids can now say in Vanadu did Kubla Khan the Stately Pleasure Dome decree, but they didn't learn that at school, and I'm, I'd be hard pressed to know the school that would teach that. My producer so, Bill just smiled. Did you know that, Bill? Did you know that? Do it again, Tevi. In Vanadu did Kubla Khan the Stately Pleasure Dome decree. Nice. Ralph the Sacred River ran. Nice. Caverns measureless to man. Nice. Yeah. So my kids know that and knew that because I forced them to memorize it, but. It is not widely known and not widely taught in any school, but it was hold, widely hold known in the previous hold, generation. Hold the thought. We'll be right back. That's why my producer was smiling when you were when you were doing that poem, Tevi, because he's a big Rush fan, and that's how he knew Kubla Khan. <laughs> okay, I love. That. Yeah, that's that's the kind of problem we face here. Um, so. To my listener's question and point, it was the Columbian Orator that Frederick Douglass said he educated himself on, which was a great collection of, you know, wonderful poems and spe- and uh, and speeches. Obviously, great speeches, Pericles, that kind of thing. A lot of Shakespeare. Um, the cultural literacy, the th- the stuff that makes makes a country a country, that turns you know countrymen into fellow citizens, and that unites them. Um, this is this is what. I think is being so harmed today in our public school system, which really was imagined as the place where students would go to learn about, you know, their common, uh, their, their, their common quest and common culture here. And I, I just think it's a really, really weird thing. The renaming of schools, of course, you mentioned this in San Francisco, uh, the removing of uh, things that we used to teach and take for granted that we're teaching. And it doesn't have to be political. So I was rereading Edie Hirsch's book, Cultural Literacy, which was really, you know, a huge book, a hugely important book, came out around the same time that Alan Bloom's book came out, 1987, 1988, right around that time. And Hirsch wrote – Hirsch is a liberal, by the way, maybe even a leftist, but somewhere between liberal and left-wing Edie Hirsch. And he wrote, to withhold traditional culture from the school curriculum and therefore from students in the name of progressivism is an unprogressive action that helps preserve the political and economic status quo. Middle class children acquire mainstream literate culture by daily encounters with other literate persons, but less privileged children are denied consistent interchanges with literate persons and fail to receive this information 
in school. The most straightforward antidote to their deprivation is to make the essential information more readily available inside the schools. This is my point. We are depriving the most deprived by depriving them of the good stuff. Look, I agree with you. As you know, I agree with you. E.D. Hirsch was indeed a liberal, but he comes from a different culture than the one that they are purveying in public schools today. From a culture of aspiration, what E.D. Hirsch says makes perfect sense. But if you buy the anti-racist and BLM and woke approach, its aspiration is a bad thing. Middle-class values are a bad thing. If you're rejecting this idea that people can better themselves through knowledge and hard work, then E.D. Hirsch's words are meaningless. And so while I agree with him and would fight to the death to the fact is that that is not the approach that the purveyors of the leftist culture want. That's a really good point. We're talking to Tevi Troy, a presidential historian, and you who have a doctorate in a kind of an interesting field. Is it American studies? Is that what it was called? American civilization. Yeah, American civilization. Um, do they even offer that anymore? Well, they do, but it's filled with all kinds of uh, Marxist and okay. Maoist classes. Okay. And, um, uh, it, it's not the kind of course work that I would want my kids to take today. Um, I was doing it because I wanted a multidisciplinary approach to history that took into account American culture and American government. As you know, we were both living in Texas at the same time. I was taking a whole bunch of classes at the LBJ School, along with my classes on American history and American culture. Uh, but today, American studies would probably be a very woke form of ethnic studies, and uh, not the kind of class that um, the kind of PhD that has served me for long. You made a really good point about Edie Hirsch being a liberal, and yet his words would be rendered or would be taken as meaningless to the modern uh, to the to the modern pedagogic class. They simply don't care about that, do they? They don't really care about a common culture or a common um, culture over the history of America. They care about something else. It's about changing minds, not enriching minds, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think they care about a common culture, but the common culture is that that yeah, okay. rejects American values, that rejects the culture of aspiration, that indirect, in, rejects the idea that America is last best help of, of mankind. And they want to kind of root that whole concept out, and they want to use the public schools and the universities to do it. And E.D. Hirsch was standing athwart that and saying, we have a common culture, let's celebrate the common culture, and it is good for my liberal values, meaning E.D. Hirsch is a big liberal, my liberal values want people to rise up and aspire through hard work and knowledge to get to a better place, and that is not what woke culture teaches today. So I have this ongoing discussion with a friend of mine, Jim, about his point is, you know, a lot of parents woke up to this kind of crud in their schools over the period of COVID when they were, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of forced to see what their kids were getting because, you know, they were getting the kids were learning at home or at least supposedly learning at home. But at least they the parents were awoken in, in large respect to a lot of the curricula that they just had no idea how crappy this curricula was. Um but the question I have, and I'd love for you to weigh in on it, the views that you and I have about education, or my friend Jim, let's say, has about what kids should learn and how much we disdain what's going on with Netflix and Ibram Kendi and 
the woke education that they're getting from, you know, uh, coloring books in first grade about transgenderism and that sort of stuff. It's amazing to me how ubiquitous it is and how fast it got to be ubiquitous. Are we going to win this or are we going to lose this? Are we super out of step or are we not, you and me? And Jim. Well, I will say that uh, you, you understand my point. I I, totally I don't want. I don't know how long my leash is basically anymore. I, I Sal- Salem protects me, but outside of Salem, I don't know how long my leash is on this point of view. Look, I understand your point. I agree with your point. I think that it is a a long game. I think uh, we've definitely taken some hits in recent years, and I think that the uh, opposing view has made remarkable progress, and I don't think progress, it's good progress, but right. they've made tremendous gains. If it were a football game, they've, they've gained a lot of yardage. But that doesn't mean by any means the game is over. When people send their kids to school and they learn this woke ideology and they are completely unemployable as a result, maybe there's a pushback against it. Okay, maybe, that's one I measure. Mean, that's one measure. But what about the parents who reads, you know, what the Iowa school system puts out, quoting Ibrahim Kendi, and say, oh, yeah, okay, this sounds like a good thing. We'll teach our children how not to be racist because it comes from a professor at Boston U. How many parents like that are there? I don't know. <laughs> There's no answer. But this is a problem. It's absolutely a problem. But I like to look back at the 1990s when there, you had the same kind of political correctness on campus as a, yep. I would say, not quite as intense but yep. still problematic. Yep. And there was a pushback. The American people rejected it. They said they didn't want to see this kind of stuff. Uh, there were movie, Hollywood movies made making fun of it. Uh, comedians got can you can you pick up on that point when we come back because that's kind of interesting and you and I have a little bit of a different opinion on can we can we talk toss that out on the on the last segment in a few moments Absolutely. that would be great I'll be I'll be right back and we're going to talk about how Americans reacted to the political correctness phenomenon in the 90s with Tevi Troy and then it's your show folks 602-508-0960 we'll be right back Presidential historian Tevi Troy has been our guest as we wrap up. Ronald Reagan in his second inaugural said history is a ribbon constantly unfurling. And Tevi, you kind of gave us that that imagery um, in the last segment talking about our education, how it goes through ebbs and flows of moments when, as you were saying, in the 90s, political correctness was storming the scene. We rose up. Go with that, if you will. So in the 90s, you did have all this nonsense about, on campus about political correctness. You couldn't say women. It had to be W-Y-M-Y-N. And uh, you couldn't be a freshman. You had to be a fresh person. And so they, they, you know, they were playing linguistic games on the campuses, and the American people revolted against it. And there were smart books written. E.D. Hirsch uh, talked about cultural literacy, and this whole idea of rejecting Western civilization uh, was, was shown to be unpopular on both the left people like Hirsch and on the right, you have the Alan Bloom book. Um, Dinesh D'Souza went on campuses and exposed some of the ridiculous practices. You started to have Hollywood movies making fun of political correctness. You had comedians mocking it. And there seemed to be a bipartisan consensus saying that this is not the direction we want to go. Now, I rec- and it went into quiescence for a while. Now, I recognize that it's back and yeah, really it's on the head right, and right. more powerful today. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we can't People of right mind can't try and take a similar approach, build a bipartisan coalition, uh, build a uh, use mockery uh, and uh, use the, the mode of culture that are available to us. There are ways to circumvent the culture today that weren't available then, including uh, Twitter and YouTube and PragerU. And I know they're trying to clamp down on alternative uh, viewpoints uh, from the tech giants, but 
there, there are still all kinds of ways to get your views out there that were not available in the early 90s. And, and I think this is a winnable war. That doesn't mean we're going to win. But, I mean, I think it's a winnable war. That's a great point. It's a winnable war. It doesn't mean we're going to win. Maybe maybe when you come back next time, uh, I can give you a homework assignment, Tevi. Think about what those what some of those cultural options are for us. I have my own ideas. I'll share, I'll share them with you as well. But uh, this is where I think the battlefield is. I really do think – I don't mean to make too much of it. I think it – there's a lot to it when Ginsburg told Podhoritz, we're going to get you through your kids. I, th- I think the left, I think he spoke wisely for a big part of the left in that. And I think that's what they've done. And I think that's where we have to go, the schools. You know, in drug abuse policy, we learn we have to start earlier and earlier and earlier. You know, we used to have a program for 11th graders, realized we needed to start in 8th grade. Then we realized, you know, we really need to start in 6th grade. The left figured this out politically. They're now dealing with toddlers. Tevi Troy, God bless you, sir. This has been a great hour. Thanks for having me. And remember Ronald Reagan on this, the 35th anniversary of the Challenger tragedy. It's been great. Nicely put. Tevi Troy, author of Fight House, Rivalries in the White House, from Truman to Trump. Talk to you soon, sir. Or scream at you soon. <laughs> 602-508-0960. Your show the rest of the hour. Be right back. <laughs> 